Now, I do want to give a brief synopsis of last week because it really gives us a clear idea of why Paul begins to talk about what he talks about in the verses we're going to look at. So I want us to begin reading the first seven verses of the book of Galatians. It's not going to be our lesson tonight, but I do just want to touch on them. The Bible says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now Paul is dealing with the biblical doctrine of adoption. When we say adoption today, what we mean is the taking of a child out of one family and placing them in another family. And I go ahead and tell you that I'm thankful that God took me out of the family of the devil and placed me in the family of God. I've been translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. But the word adoption in the Word of God is not speaking about that truth. Now that is true that God's done that for us. But the word adoption in the Bible carries with it uh, a particular idea, and I'm going to give you a word that I think may clarify it if you know any history at all, and it is the word regent. Now, if you know anything about monarchies and about history, you know that a regent was a person when a heir was uh, born and was maybe through some sort of political turmoil, uh, was given the throne of a kingdom at a very young age, uh, and there were several of them throughout. I've been watching this, uh, or I was watching this documentary on the British monarchy several times in their history uh, that a child would become king. I mean, you know, a child that's seven, eight years old, sometimes even an infant child would be a king. Well, that, that child doesn't have the capacity to rule. And so they would be placed in the care of a regent. And a regent was someone uh, that saw the well-being of that child and made decisions for that child until the time came that they were old enough to take on the responsibility and to take on the privileges of their position. This word adoption in the Word of God deals with a uh, typically a slave during this time that would be greatly trusted in Greek households uh, that would be given the responsibility of raising a child. We can't imagine that now. Uh, you know, I told them last week that we could afford anything, we'd afford a maid. Amen. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we can't hardly afford uh, any kind of help in that way now, even if we wanted it. Uh, but at this time, uh, this trusted slave would be entrusted with this child's well-being, and uh, they would be a governor, a tutor, as is mentioned in verse number 2, to raise that child up. And that child would be uh, the Lord of all. He'd be an heir. Everything that belonged to his daddy would belong to him. And yet he did not have the privilege of making the decisions associated with that position yet. He was too young. Well, in this same truth, uh, the Bible teaches us that Old Testament saints were, in a sense, part of the family of God. The new birth was not an Old Testament doctrine. But they were accepted of God. They were considered to be His and to belong to Him. And yet we find several truths in the Old Testament uh, that have changed with the dispensation of grace. And I gave one example as being Old Testament saints. When they died, they did not go to heaven, but rather they went to Abraham's bosom. And we learn that from Luke chapter number 16 and various other passages. 
Uh, God had promised them through Abraham that promise had been made. Uh, all the privileges that we have in this day of grace also belong to those Old Testament saints. And yet they could not enter into them yet. Uh, this very same truth uh, is there concerning the Holy Spirit of God. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit never indwelt anyone. It would be upon people and beside them and behind them and underneath them, but you never find the Holy Spirit indwelling saints in the Old Testament. And yet God had promised He would pour out His Spirit uh, upon us. God made these promises uh, in the Old Testament. So what happened? They, they were positionally uh, part of the family of God, but they were not practically part of the family of God yet. Uh, all of these things were promised to them. They did belong to God, but until Calvary, they couldn't utilize some of these things. The Bible says uh, in John chapter number 7 that Christ spoke on feast day and uh, said, uh, Everyone that thirsteth, come unto me, and I will give them drink. And John gives this statement. He says that this statement of the Spirit which was not yet come because Jesus was not yet crucified. Uh, so the Holy Spirit of God uh, could not come, could not indwell believers until the burial, the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Christ died for our sins, the Bible says that He descended into the lower parts of the earth and uh, took captivity captive and ascended up on high. And that's the reason that uh, in the book of Matthew, I believe it's chapter number uh, 25 or chapter 27, it describes... Old Testament saints raising from the dead when Christ died for their sins. Uh, it's because there was an adoption that took place. They were no longer uh, just a, a child, but now they were full-fledged heirs. And so there are three different aspects to this adoption. There is a uh, positional aspect. Old Testament saints had this. And then there is a uh, personal or a practical application of this. John or, uh, Paul speaks of that there in verse number 6, because of your sons. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you and I, we've been born again into the family and kingdom of God. The Spirit of God indwells us, and uh, through the Spirit of God we have that relationship with God the Father. So we have a practical and personal adoption relationship with God. He has owned us as His Son. Uh, there would come a time in that child's life when he had proved that he was responsible enough to make some decisions when his father would take him to the public forum. It would be very equivalent to a courthouse today and uh, would legally present him as his heir to the entire community to say, this is my son. I trust him. Uh, I have confidence in him. He is my heir. Well, there's coming a day when there's going to be a public aspect to our adoption. The Bible teaches that when Christ returns in power and in glory and sets up his kingdom, that we will reign with him. And uh, the book of Romans chapter 8 speaks of this, that the whole creation groaneth and prevaileth until now. Uh, they're waiting for the adoption of the creature. And so I encourage you to do some study about these things uh, or pick up the recording from last week. We'll have it as soon as we finish this series. Uh, we'll make you some CDs and you can catch up with that. But uh, all of these things, the privilege that we have, the deliverance that Christ has provided for us is the context for the next few passages we're going to read. Paul's been dealing with the truth of the privilege that the believer has in Jesus Christ. He just got through showing how in the Old Testament the law did have a purpose, the law did have a place, but what we have through grace is much grander than what they have under the Old Testament law. But now consider the context of who Paul is writing to. He's writing to a group of believers who have voluntarily attempted to place themselves under the yoke of the bondage of Old Testament law. Now, he's just got through describing all the glorious things that we have through grace. 
And he's doing this to a group of people that have pushed grace away and said, we don't want to live that way, we want to live under bondage. It's important for us to understand in the denominational environment that we live in today. Uh, you know, and I, I'm, I'm going to try to say this in the best way that I know how. Typically, denominations that uh, proclaim salvation through works, and my mind immediately goes to the charismatic and the Pentecostal movement, uh, typically those churches like to present themselves as being really live wire and exciting and got a lot going on and, uh, you know, all their, all their meetings that they have, people breaking out in tongues and smacking each other on the forehead and healing and, you know, all these various things going on. And sometimes it's easy to look at that movement and envy it and think to yourself, you know, boy, look how much fun they're having. Look how exciting that is. But in actuality, they have placed themselves under a bondage that you and I, as biblical, Bible-believing Christians, are not placed under. For you see, they live every day in fear that if they don't operate in that way, then they're going to lose their salvation. And Paul is going to talk in the next few verses about what is lost when we allow ourselves to be put under the bondage of legalism. Look with me at verse number 8. The Bible says, How be it then... When ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preach the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, ye despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. But it is a good thing to be zealously affected, always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, of whom I prevail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Now again, keep in mind who he's writing to. These Galatians are not Jews. They are Gentiles. And when he speaks of the time in their life that God has delivered them from, you must try to put in your mind the pagan framework that is their background. He says in verse 8, Howbeit then when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no God. Look with me at these Galatians in pagan darkness. Here they are worshiping all manner of deities that they really can't identify, that they really can't in any way have a relationship with. Paul says that they're by nature no gods. Here they are trying to appease some deity that they are not familiar with, trying to find some image of him in stone or in gold or in wood, something in their minds that can convey some sort of understanding about God. We know that at this part of the world, at this time, that uh, the Roman pantheon and the Greek pantheon, which is still very much in influence, uh, that they would observe all, all kinds of holidays and feast days they were really in a framework of work salvation before they ever knew anything of Old Testament law. 
Do you understand that this world is lost in legalism? You can talk to people day in and day out and ask them, do you know where you're going when you die? And they'll give you answers like this. Oh yes, I'm a good person. Oh yes, I, I go to church. Oh yes, I've been baptized. Oh yes, I give to charity. Oh yes, I work in a soup kitchen. We were standing one day and uh, a lady came in and, and I shared this and Miss Fern's here with us. Miss Fern began to witness to this lady and immediately this lady tried to flee to the refuge of her good works. She said, you don't know all the good things that I do. She said, I, I go down to the soup kitchen and I do this and I do that and I do this and I do that. And that's what people run to. People that know nothing of religion. People that know nothing of Bible Christianity. You see, this whole world is lost in legalism. And it's easy sometimes in the framework of Christendom to dismiss that. But that's just as much legalism as it was when pagans in uh, ages past would offer sacrifices to pagan idols, when they would try to hurt themselves and abuse themselves, or when they would try to have these ceremonies of lusts of the flesh. They were trying to do something to appease and please a God that they did not know and could not understand. This is the background of these Galatians. This is what they've grown up in. Legalism. Uh, what was it that uh, Mr. Shakespeare said? A road by any other name? Well, legalism by any other name, it's still legalism. It's still, it may be legalism of religion. It may be legalism of paganism. It may be legalism of hedonism and the lust of the flesh. But the attempt to please God through anything that we do is legalism. And it has absolutely infected this world that we live in. The average person that you ask will immediately flee this refuge. And the Galatians were no different. But then there came a change in their life. Here came this little fellow named Paul, who they did not know, like a hurricane, who came in and preached a message that they had never heard, about a Jesus that they did not know, about a way to heaven and about a grace of God that they were not familiar with. And all of a sudden, the beautiful notes of the Gospel of Jesus Christ began to flow through their ears and into their hearts, and they thought, could it be that I could know God apart from my works? Maybe you remember that time in your life when you knelt down at an altar contrite and broken and convicted. And you thought to yourself, there's nothing I can do and there's nothing I can do and there's nothing I can do. And then finally you heard the trumpet of the Gospel say, you don't have to do anything. It's already been done for you. Maybe, maybe you remember that first glimpse of Calvary that you got. You beheld the man as Pilate exhorted us to do so. You beheld him upon the cross. He was evidently set forth crucified among you, just like Paul said of the Galatians. And you saw in a moment there your sin nailed upon a tree and vanished from the memory of God, and you saw a glimpse of grace. You called upon Christ to forgive you and save you. But now some time has passed in the Galatian experience. The Judaizers have come in. And the thing that the Galatians were oblivious to is that they were entering into the same weak and beggarly elements that God had saved them out of. We need to understand the transition that Calvary was for us. We need to understand how radically Calvary changed our life and our hearts. He says there was a time in your life when you did service, and that word service has the idea of slavery and bondage. You were in bondage to these uh, things that by nature are no gods. But now, after that you notice this, after that you have known God, and then Paul almost does a 180 in the way of his thinking. He says, now that you have known God, he begins there, because that's where we all begin. We all begin when we get saved, 
awestruck by this idea that we can know God. But then somewhere in the Christian experience, a greater truth eclipses that, that fact that we are known of God. You see, at first they were just amazed that they could know something of this God. But now they've come to the understanding that this God is a real God. He's not a God like those other gods they have served, which by nature are no gods. He's, he's not a God of religion. He's a God of relationship. He's not a God of legalism. He's a God of love and of life. He's a God that communicates with them. And Paul says, don't you understand that no matter what your perception of God is, it doesn't change the fact that if you've been to Calvary, you may know God, but remember more that you're known of God. You have a God that recognizes you. You've got a God that heard when you call. All those other pagan gods, all those wooden and stone and silver and gold idols that you prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed to, trying to do something through your own works for them. They never recognized you. But when you came contrite to Calvary and called upon Christ, not through your good works, not through anything you did, not through your own righteousness, but through grace, you became known of God. God responded to you. This is that same God, the one that we have a relationship with. He says you're known of God. He says this, But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. Now what Paul is trying to do is get them to understand that when they push away from grace, and the, the terminology that's used here is to fall from grace, and that's perfect Bible terminology, but it has been hijacked by denominationalism today, and I'm aware of that. And so when we speak of what falling from grace means here, we're not talking about losing your salvation. There's no such doctrine as losing your salvation anywhere in the Word of God. But when he says, when you walk away from that walk of grace, you've just traded one thing for another. You've traded a bad thing for an equally bad thing. Well, really, you've traded a bad thing for a worse thing. We need to understand what it is when we try to appease and please God through our good works. Now, we talked about earlier, way early in this study, when we were in chapter 2, we talked about the life and the faith of the Son of God that, that liveth in us and, and through us. And I'm not saying that the Christian life is divorced from works, because certainly we, we, we do serve God, and we do need to do the right thing, and we do need to be obedient to God. But we need to understand that whether we're obedient or disobedient, it doesn't change our status with God. It may affect our fellowship and our communion with Him. But you can do all the good works in the world, and you're never going to be any more saved than I am. By the same token, you may be the most heinous thing that could ever enter into human heart or mind, and you won't be any less saved than I am. And yet we live in a day where there is a pecking order set up in the minds of many Christians that I'm really somebody because I do this. Whatever it may be. Because I'm part of this. Because I act such and such way. Because I look such and such way. Because I own such and such. And even in many churches you see this infecting. And, uh, you know, it's hard, it's hard for us because most of us are not part of these churches. Uh, I, I've heard of churches around that, that, that give you little necklaces and tokens to wear based on how much you tithe and how much you give. 
worries about. I mean, that scares me. Makes me nervous. Makes me think of the stars they put on the Jews. Amen. In the Holocaust, labeling, and even some of us were guilty of being a respecter of persons based upon someone's doctrinal pedigree or their financial statement. The reality is, who and what we are is not based upon who and what we are. It's based upon Jesus Christ. How God sees us is based upon Calvary and nothing else. And we may as Christians say, oh, I'm thankful that salvation's by and through grace. And it is by and through grace. But when we turn around and then try to measure our Christianity based by all these weak and beggarly things, we're trying to walk back into the darkness that God saved us out of. We need to understand the impact of this. It's important, not that we might make enemies, not that we might build ourselves a little clique and a little club and push everybody out and treat everybody second class that, that doesn't believe everything exactly like us, but that we might understand so that we can educate and encourage those that have the pressures of this kind of legalism in their life. It's hard for us to fathom. I'm telling you right now, it's hard for us to fathom. Some of you may have family members that are part of, of a legalistic church or a legalistic denominational movement and you understand the pressures that they're in and under to be that, to live that way, and to act that way. I know very many of them that, uh, you know, it's all based upon that performance on Sunday morning, looking the part, acting the part, talking the part. We need to understand the damage that that can do. Paul uses these two terms. He uses the term weak, and he uses the term beggarly. Powerless and poverty. Those are the two words that I think of. Weak, powerless. Could works ever save a man? By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It wasn't our good works that, that, that saved us. It's not our good works that, that sanctifies. It's only the Spirit of God within us that can, that can provide and affect that change in us that's most needed. It's never been our good works. They've always been weak. All through the Old Testament, one thing you find, they look back in the Old Testament and they say, oh, look how righteous they were. But if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find out just how righteous they were. The law never could affect the sanctification of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Old Testament, saying it was impossible. It's hard for us to imagine sometimes the framework that they lived in. Because we look through the Old Testament, and listen, you find scoundrels in the New Testament just like you do the Old Testament. But some of the greatest men in the Old Testament are marked by a life that lacked the indwelling Spirit of God because no one had the indwelling Spirit of God. No one did. Look at some of the men that God used through the Old Testament. Now, I'm not saying that anybody should live uh, in perfection on this side of the grave. I understand that we're not going to attain uh, to the eradication of the flesh or sinless sanctification until Jesus comes. I'm aware of that. But you go through the Old Testament... And you find liars and murderers and womanizers and thieves. You find people like David. Who, I mean, David's a man after God's own heart. And yet look at the heart-wrenching story that Nathan the prophet tells him about the man that had the little lamb, the one lamb that he had, and this other man that had all the flocks and all of the animals that he could ever imagine. But that man in his selfishness chose to rob this man of his one little lamb that he had raised up in his household. Nathan looked at him and pointed a prophetic finger at him and said, David, thou art the man. Thou art the man. Tell me whether the works of the law could ever 
achieve any kind of sanctification. Or better yet, some would say, well, preacher, that's too far removed from our experience today. That's not relevant. Look to the movements that tout legalism and ask yourself whether they show forth the marks of born-again, spirit-filled believers. Look to the carnality. Oh, I know there'll be some some get crossed with me. Probably not in this crowd, but maybe there would be. Uh, that's all right. We'll just have to uncross it. Amen. But look at the charismatic movement. Look at the charismatic movement. They say, well, you know, we speak in tongues. Well, so did the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was the most carnal church that Paul ever wrote a letter to. Things went on at Corinth that didn't go on to any of the other churches. And by and large, you will find that if you take away the Sunday morning theatrical performance from the charismatic movement, there's no difference between most of them and any lost person that you'd ever meet. Now, that's not to say there's not exceptions. It's not to say there aren't people that have been saved by grace and then have been ensnared in those churches. In fact, Paul's writing to people that have been ensnared into the legalistic movement after having been saved by grace. But by and large, you will find that churches that are based upon legalism are corrupted with carnality. Look at the Roman Catholic Church. They forbid their priests to marry, which, by the way, the Bible prophetically said there'd come a day when in the corruptness of human hearts, that would be a common practice. The Roman Catholic Church forbids their priests to marry based upon some anti It's not just extra-scriptural, it's anti-scriptural. The Bible says uh, that if a man obtains uh, a wife, he, he finds a good thing, an anti-scriptural sentiment that it's not God's will for any of their priests to marry. And so what do you find? You find that the Roman Catholic Church is right with pedophilia. I mean, that's just the truth of it. There's no, there's no restraining factor in their life, in their experience. You say, well, preacher, does that mean that everyone that, that is not married is going to become a pedophile? No, of course that's not what that means. But when you have a vast, large group of men that you forbid from marrying and they've never been born again and they're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, there's no restraining and sanctifying factor in their life. It's not very surprising that that would happen. It's weak elements. Weak elements. The law never could sanctify Good works still can't sanctify. A man can try and do his dead level best to do it. He'll be like the man that Christ spoke of that uh, gets rid of the evil spirit, goes home, finds his house clean and sweat, and he's miserable and he's lonely and he walks through dry places. But why are they dry places? Because there's no fountain of living water in his life. There's no indwelling Holy Spirit. He's not got a relationship. He's just got reformation. And he goes out and finds seven evil spirits. It's worse than the first. And the end of that man is worse than the beginning was. Because good works has no capacity to sanctify man. It's weak. Then we have a second word, beggarly. Beggarly. I, I couldn't imagine, and I, I try to say this without being in any way arrogant or self-righteous, but I couldn't imagine what torment it must be to live every day in fear that with your next mistake, you're going to lose your salvation and die and go to hell. That's not fulfillment. That's not peace. That's not joy. It's not the richness of Christ. I mean, look at all that God's given us through grace. They didn't have it in the Old Testament. Oh, yes, they, they had a relationship of fear. They had a relationship of bondage. They didn't have the relationship of love and of joy that you and I have through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You see, those elements were beggarly. They didn't provide anything. They didn't add anything to their life and to their experience. 
Go through and study the history of pagan nations. You'll find it to be a history of sorrow and darkness, war and violence, always trying to consume upon its own lust and never fulfill. Why? Because its own good works were beggarly. Couldn't provide any of the riches that salvation through Jesus Christ can. And yet it's easy to look in condemnation to those that are in pagan countries and pagan lands. And yet I'm convinced that we have just as much legalism in the most great in the most wonderful country on the face of the earth, in one of the most prosperous countries on the face of the earth. I think we have just as much legalism here than we have in the darkest places of Africa or in the poorest places of India. They may be worshiping those things which by nature are no gods, but the legalism that's in America is just as wicked and just as straight out of hell as anything that's in any pagan land. I mean, I, listen, I mean, I think there's a great need to send missionaries and to reach people in, in foreign lands. I believe it's the will of God to do that. But I'll tell you right now, there's a lot of people in legalistic darkness right next door to us that are in need of Jesus Christ. They're trying to get to heaven through the church membership. Trying to find satisfaction through their good works. And it'll never happen. Why? Because they're weak. They're beggarly elements. Paul says, you're desiring to go back into bondage to these things. You're desiring to go back into this. He gives this example. He says, you observe days and months and times and years. I think we must be very careful. I, I believe God is a, is, a, is a calendar God, if that makes sense. I believe that God has a prophetic timetable. I believe that one of these days on the other side of heaven when we no longer care, that we'll be able to look back and see the meticulous chronology of God's workings and dealings. But understand that the observation of years or days or months, or let's say the observation of denominational expectations, the, the observation of the expectations of those around us to live up to this standard or that standard, is not going to avail us in our relationship with Christ. Nothing, nothing can make up for the communion and fellowship that we have with Him. So Paul speaks of the inability of the law or of works in general to be able to accomplish this. And then Paul begins to talk about the way they've changed their relationship to the Word of God and to the man of God. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, I'm afraid of you. Now, Paul's not saying this in the sense that he had a personal fear of bodily harm from them or some kind of ramification. But what he is saying is he's saying, when I see the way you're living, it makes me afraid lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Let me say this, that legalism has the capacity to paralyze the work of the Word and Spirit of God in the life of an individual. We'll never grow until we understand that our own good works have been banished and abolished in our own strength, in our own ability that those things are null and void. And when we seek to find the righteousness of Christ live through us through surrender and submission to the Holy Spirit, we will be paralyzed in our spiritual growth. This is an idea, this is a doctrine that I believe, and, you know, I mean, opinions, oh, let's roll off, you say that opinions are the cheapest thing in the world because everybody's got one, but I believe that this is a doctrine that is mostly lost on New Testament Christianity today. The notion that, that we become what we need to be, not through striving, but through surrendering. Not through service, but through submission. What Paul is saying here 
is that when you're trying to do it your way, you're not doing it God's way. When you're trying to do it through your own strength, you're not doing it through God's strength. Let me tell you what we've done today. We've come up with so many rules and standards and guidelines that we can live the Christian life without depending on the Holy Spirit. We know how to talk the talk. We know how to walk the walk. And so we live from day to day within the parameters that we have set up ignoring the leading and wooing and working of the Holy Spirit. I'm not trying to say by this that the Holy Spirit would necessarily lead us contrary to those things. But we are led by the Spirit of God or we're not. There's a lot of good things that I recommend to. I mean, I recommend that you have standards in the way that you dress and the way that you look. I recommend that you have uh, that you go to the right kind of church. I recommend that you read the King James Bible. I recommend these things. But understand that you can do all those things. All of them. I mean, you can have, you can be the best Christian anybody would ever look for. But if you're doing it through your own strength, and not because you are surrendering and submitting and leading the Holy Spirit in the day-by-day, moment-by-moment experience of your life, then it's all vanity. We've missed this today. We're grooming entire generations of Christians that just know how to play the game, but they don't know how to follow the coach. This is the danger that we that we are embarking on. And listen, this is what we're reaping. We've sown this, and you know what we're reaping today? We're reaping generations of young people that grow up looking for something real because what they're finding in the church house isn't real. Generations of young people that are growing up and looking for something powerful because what they're having in the church house is not powerful. And they're going out and going to the first thing that they see. They're stepping out into the world and reaching for the first thing that makes them feel something. Most of the time it's illicit relationships, it's drugs, it's alcohol. It's all kinds of carnality and sinfulness. You know why they're flocking away so badly? Because of the vanity that so much church religion has become today. People just play in the game. Oh, I mean, if you were to look at it, it looked like they were doing all right. And you know, there's a difference. And I'm not a big sports guy. I mean, I like sports and we're, you know, brick by brick. We're coming up on football season. But you can tell the difference when the quarterback's calling the plays from the huddle and the coach is calling the plays from the sideline. Because no matter how good that quarterback may be, he's still not the coach. And that's the experience we're seeing today. We're seeing Christians calling all the shots from the hub. But they don't have the wisdom that the coach has. The plays may look good. And the plays may function. It may seem sometimes like we're winning the game. But in reality, all we're doing is all those other players that are looking to that quarterback for wisdom... They're losing their confidence in the coach. Because you know what they eventually begin to think? They eventually begin to think, why do we even have a coach when we can just listen to the quarterback? And you know what we're having today? We're having generations of young people growing up saying, why do I even need to read the Bible? I can just listen to the preacher. Why do I even need to follow the Holy Spirit? I, I, I know what the right thing is to do. That's the danger of what we're experiencing today. You see, our legalism has paralyzed the work of the Word of God, the man of God, the Spirit of God, the church, in the life of our young people. We need to understand the impact of this. 
says in verse 12, Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am. For I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. Paul says, I'm not saying this to fuss at you. I'm not saying this because I'm mad at you. He's saying, I'm saying this because I want you to live the same kind of life that I'm living. He says, you've not injured me. I, I'm, not, I'm not writing this letter to beat you up or to fuss at you. I'm writing you because I see the heartache of what you're going through. He says, you know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, he despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. We assume, and I believe this is a, a scriptural assumption, if there is such a thing, uh, that Paul, whenever he was ministering to the Galatians, that, that he was dealing with a sickness, with a malady. I'm of the personal belief that it was an eye uh, an eye disease, and uh, you know, Mr. Uh, Schofield, who's wrong a lot of times, but uh, he defines it. I think he calls it uh, ophthalmologia, or you know, some one of them big old long words somewhere in his notes uh, here that Paul was dealing with, and the thorn in his flesh. And what Paul says is this: He says, "When I came to you, I didn't look like much, but it didn't matter. You received me as an angel of God. Why? Because it wasn't about living up to a standard." Instead, it was about finding the truth of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Look how their attitude has changed. Verse 15, Where is then the blessedness you spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. I heard a preacher put it this way once, and, and it has always stuck with me. Because we read that and we think, what does he mean when he says, where then is this blessedness that you spake of? Uh, that seems foreign to us. Let me give you something I think that will clear it up. Paul, when he came to, to him the first time, he was in the infirmity of the flesh. I mean, this man, uh, he, he's, he's an ex-con. He's, he's this little short man. He's a troublemaker by accounts of most people. He's an outcast from Judaistic religion. He's hated by, by pagans everywhere. But when they saw him, because he came preaching the gospel of truth, they'd look at him and they'd say, Bless you, brother Paul. Bless you, brother Paul. You see, that's how we say it today. God bless you, Brother Paul. What a blessing you are, Brother Paul. What a blessing it is to have you. There was a warmth to their Christianity before they embarked on legalism. I have people comment very often about the friendliness of our church. And I, and I say that partially to brag on you all, not on me, but on you all as a church. And then also to illustrate this truth. People say all the time, "What man, what a blessing. Man, how friendly. Friendliest church I've ever been in. And I always tell them, well, it was like that when I got there. I, it's not anything that I've done. But I did make up my mind early on that I was not going to be the type of pastor that got people through the doors through bullying them or browbeating them. You see, I don't want people coming to church to live up to my standard. I don't want them coming to church to keep me happy. Now, it, it encourages your pastor when you come to church. Times when people miss for reasons other than being providentially hindered, it's a discouragement to those around them that they're not there. But I don't want that to be the motivation for why you come to church. You know why? Because the moment it comes, becomes about living up to my standard, it becomes legalism. It becomes trying to attain some kind of Christian standard through your own good works. Let me tell you the reason that I believe that our church is a friendly church. I believe it's because the people that are here because they want to be here. Now, I'm sure there's times, don't misunderstand me, you've heard the old story about the fellow that, you know, his, uh, his mother came in and told him you're going to have to get up and uh, go to church. And he said, I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to go to church. 
And she said, well, I'm sorry, you don't have to get up and go to church. So I, I, I'm not going to go to church. They said everybody's mean down there. Nobody listens to me. They're all unkind. They don't shake my hand. All they do is complain about me and gossip about me. She says, why should I go to that church? And she said, well, son, because you're 32 and you're the pastor. Now get out of bed and go to church. You know? We all have times when we come to church out of duty. I'm aware of that. That's not lost on me. We all have times when we roll out of bed and that blanket weighs 100 tons and, and we don't feel like going. We all have times when the devil's after us. So I'm not saying that Wall Ridge or any other church is impervious to that. There are, there's always going to be times like that. But one thing about it, you're not going to have a very good spirit in your church if everybody hates coming. You're not going to have good fellowship if everybody hates each other. I mean, it's just that simple. And one sure way to get people sick of the house of God is for them to be coming for the preacher, for the members, for anybody other than Jesus Christ. You see, their legalism had affected a poor spirit with them. They got to the place. I was talking to someone the other day, and we were talking about delegating. A pastor has to learn how to delegate. The reason why is because if he doesn't, everybody's going to hate him. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, it, it sounds ugly to say that, but that's the truth. You you spread the dirty work around. That that way, everybody don't always hate you. You know why? Because preachers going to have to get up and say and love some things that people don't want to hear from the pulpit. And people ain't going to hear it when they're miserable, when they're angry, when they're bitter. They're not going to hear it. They're going to have the same attitude that these Galatian believers have. Paul says, where then is this blessedness? What about that warm spirit that you have? What about that love you have towards each other? What's happened to that? He says, I'll tell you what's happened to that. Legalism has happened to that. Playing the game. Calling the plays from the hub instead of hearing from the coach. That's what's caused that. You see, legalism has more effects than, than denominations will let you, let you think, will let you know. And the devil always paints things up as being harmless, being appealing. But legalism has dire consequences. He says in verse number 15, he says, You would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. What about that attitude of self-sacrifice? One sure way to get people to quit helping each other is to set up a legalistic standard. Because pretty soon someone's not going to measure up to it. And people ain't going to want to do for him and help him anymore. He says, there was a time you would have given anything to me and for me, but now that's gone. You're all wrapped up in trying to please these Judaizers and this apostle that was writing. And, I, and I'm not saying any of this trying to, trying to imply me or any other preacher as being Paul or being an apostle. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying the very messenger of God for them, they were now neglecting so that they were, could play this game and live up to this standard. And we better be careful who we, who we shut out in the way of the Word of God and the truth of God in our lives. He says in verse number 16, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? We've been studying through 1 John on Wednesday nights and getting close to finishing it up. In fact, the Lord will help us to uh, Wednesday night will be our last, our last uh, message out of 1 John. But one of the things that I have been struck by as I read through the book of 1 John is the response that it speaks of to those that are not of the truth towards those that are of the truth. 
And the Bible gives us the acid test for the spirit of error or the spirit of truth in 1 John chapter 4. And what John says is, He that heareth us is of the truth. John's not saying preachers. John's speaking as an apostle and as one of the men that wrote the Word of God, that God used to pin down His words. And so what he's saying is this. He's saying, You have turned away from Me because of the truth of the Word of God. Saying that's how you find out the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Is how does it measure up to the Word of God? We're in a real bad place when we'll turn people away because of a biblical stance. Because they share the truth with us. I've told you before, in fact several times in this study, that I've had more people get angry at me over telling them that they can't lose their salvation than I have over telling people that if they died in their lost condition, they'd go to hell. There's something about that legalistic structure that they're extra sensitive about. And this was true in Paul's day too. This legalism had caused them to jump through hoops to try to attain to some standing. All the while shutting out the truth of the Word of God. I'm not wanting you to identify Paul with me. I'm wanting you to identify Paul with the Word of God here. He was become their enemy because he told them the truth. Legalism has always survived off trying to suppress the truth of the Word of God. The Roman Catholic Church for centuries did everything it could to lock away the Word of God. And even to this very day, the charismatic movement is not based upon the truth of the Word of God, but rather is based upon their experience and their sensual feelings. You say, well, I don't know about that. Well, look at the way that the tongues movement works. If we were really, and I don't believe that the gibberish that charismatics tout as being tongues is the same thing that was taking place in the New Testament. But let's assume for a moment that it is. Let's assume for a moment that tongues is a real phenomenon that is extant today in the experience of the New Testament church. The Bible says that women are to keep their silence in church, that you're not to have any more than one person speaking in tongues. Uh, at any given time, they're supposed to do it in course, and they're only supposed to do it with an interpreter present so that it can be interpreted. You find me one charismatic church that follows any of those rules. No, you won't find that. Why? Because it's not about the truth of the Word of God. It's about their experience. They do everything they can to suppress the Word of God or to twist it so far out of context as to make it mean something entirely different. Now, I'm not trying to pick on Pentecostals or Charismatics. I'm not trying to even pick on Roman Catholics. I'm just merely saying that in legalistic environments, and this is true, by the way, in, in old-fashioned, independent, fundamental King James Bible Baptist churches that have legalism, it's just as true that they uphold the traditions of men more than the teachings of the Word of God. There was a time, friend, when they would have run me out of any independent Baptist church you would have seen because I got this, this fuzz on my face. There'd be, there, there's preachers around that would call me a compromiser if I wore anything other than a white shirt to preach in. There's preachers around that would have called you a compromiser, some of you, for those wire-rimmed glasses that you're wearing. That's the truth now. It, it's not just the charismatic. It's not just the Roman Catholics. It's any environment where legalism is the premise. Why? Because legalism is not a biblical doctrine. 
By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's never been works. So any place that claims it is works has to do so by neglecting the plain teaching and truth of the Word of God. It says, I'm become your enemy, therefore, because I tell you the truth. Verse 17 says, They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. Now, what Paul is doing is trying to get them to understand the impact that these Judaizers, what the motive that these Judaizers have is. He says, oh, they zealously affect you. And something you'll find is oftentimes people that are trying to get to heaven through their own good works are more zealous of their own good works than those of us that already have attained unto heaven are when we ought to be more zealous than they. Go and find a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon sometime. I mean, I can tell, look at this crap. Most of us would put it on a bicycle. Amen? That's just the truth, man. You can get the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses out to go door to door to try to get a Baptist. I'm just telling you the truth, man. They zealously affect you, Paul says, but not well. Not all zeal is good. What zeal is good? He says, yea, or in verse number 18, he says, but it is good to be zealously affected, always in a good thing. He's not saying I have a problem with their zeal. He said I have a problem with what they're zealous of. What's their motivation? They would exclude you that you might affect them. I, 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 don't, I don't know what I'm going to wind up saying here. That's <laughs> not good, is it? Um, I don't know what this is going to be. Let me just say this. There's a lot of empires built on legalism today. There's a lot of churches based on building cookie-cutter Christians that fit a certain standard. They would exclude you that you might affect them. They'd rob you of your liberty to fill their pews. They'd rob you of, their, of your liberty to fill their coffers. There's churches, and I've got. I'm just too tactful. You know me. <laughs> I'm too tactful to call names. But there's churches around here that are seemingly biblical, that are based upon a cookie cutter image and a legalistic mentality. And if you want to, if you want to move up in those churches, you'll toe the line. If you want to be somebody, you'll toe the line. And all the while, what's the motivation? I'm going to go ahead and tell you that they don't build churches quickly and easily by abolishing legalism. You know, I said a moment ago that I made up my mind I wasn't going to get people through the door through browbeating them or bullying them. I can tell you right now, we've had people leave our church. I could have begged them to stay. Maybe they would have. I, I could go out and promise people the moon and get them through the door. I could play that game. And I could build the church. I could zealously affect them. I could exclude them so that they would affect me. But what would we have at the end of the day? What would we have? We'd have a big old building with a bunch of bitter, angry people just playing a game. That's not what I want. I don't think that's what our church and some of you that are here, your churches, I don't think that's what they want. You remember Paul talked about becoming a fool for other men's sakes. I can tell you right now that, that when you look at Paul 
And I'm, and I'm tell I have, I have kicked into that rabbit chasing mode, and I'm conscious of it. I know you are, so I'm gonna close. But, but do you understand the authority that Paul had in being an apostle? You know what meekness is, don't you? Meekness is power muzzled by the Spirit of God. That's what meekness is. Moses was the meekest man that ever lived. That's what the Bible says. Moses had the capacity. I'm convinced of this. Moses could have prayed to God and God would have struck the Israelites dead. In fact, there were a lot of times God wanted to do that and it was a prayer Moses had kept him from doing. But Moses didn't deal with people in that way. Paul could have... You know, Paul talked about delivering such a one over to Satan. It would amaze us the power that Paul had with God. And yet so often times, what did Paul do? You see Paul in tenderness and compassion pleading with people that he could probably be condemning and smiting. Why? Because motivation matters. The reason why we do things matters. An atmosphere of fear in a church is not a good thing. An atmosphere of legalism is not a good thing. You may bully people. You may drag them into doing this, into doing that. But at the end of the day, you set up a bunch of straw men that one of these days the circumstances of life will strike a match to and they'll burn up in their Christianity. Paul says, they zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected, always a good thing. And not only, doesn't this tell you his motivation? And not only when I'm present with you. Paul says, oh, I want you to be zealous. I want you to live right. I want you to do right. But I don't want you only living right and doing right when I'm around. Out of fear of me. I want you doing it for the Lord. And that ought to be every pastor's heart. For his people to have the relationship with God that they need, not based upon him, but based upon Christ. I remember a man telling me one time when I was entering youth ministry, and he had been my youth pastor for a few years, and he made this statement to me. He said, build your, build your youth ministry on Christ. He said, if you build it on yourself, and there's a great temptation to do that, he says, if you build it on yourself, when you're gone, it'll be gone. He says, if you build it upon Christ, then no matter what happens, it'll stand. What did Christ say? He said... Thou art Peter. Thou art the little pebble. Except upon this rock, I will build my church. What's our motivation for serving the Lord? Legalism can corrupt the New Testament church. We need to understand that we're who we are, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. We don't have to play games or impress anybody. We just have to live for Christ. We live for Christ, we'll be living right. We'll be doing right. We surrender to the Holy Ghost and His leading day in and day out, then we'll do right. We'll live right. Whether it fits in somebody else's box or whether it doesn't, we'll do right. We'll live right.